Hey everybody, it is episode 79 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is piping in via the interwebs from Colorado. Hey Steve. Hello world, calling at you from Camp Elevation. We are excited as always to be coming at you this time. You're just getting Steve and I as we dive into part four of listener questions. Our last listener questions episode was episode 66. And so we're a little bit overdue on getting back to your listener questions. We've got more questions than we can cover today. We're going to get to as many as we can. Steve and I have not discussed these beforehand as we like to do these episodes so that we get to freelance covering your questions. And you might get a different opinion from both of us. We'll see. This is when we argue the most. I know. It's the most fun. This is, all, think- this is my favorite episode. Every, every time. I always, I've always had fun with this one. And I think you'll like the first question I'm going to ask you. It's, it's a bit of a softball, but it'll be, it'll be <laughs> fun to see your answer. Okay. And then, of course, we've got a truckload of opening things to cover. So we're going to try to keep this relatively brief. I'm going to start with Steve, a race that happened this, was it this past weekend or two weekends ago? The Comrades Marathon. Result, we had a rogue athlete, John Armbrust, who has been on our show before to talk about comrades. We actually had, back. Two, we had two team rogers at that race. Oh, did we? Who was the other? Devin Kiernan. Oh, yeah, that's right. Devin. Yep. So two rogue athletes getting it done. John, who did not get his goal of sub nine last year, was able to come through and get it this year, finishing in 857. If I'm remembering right, Steve. His his post, I don't know if it was public post or just to our group, where he described basically having full body cramps and having to do all sorts of things, including side shuffling and running backwards just to try to get to the line and under his nine-hour goal. And he was able to do it to secure one of the coveted Bill Rowan medals, which is a silver medal with a bronze center that you get for sub-nine hours. So congrats to John. As, as his coach, Steve, you must be proud. I am very proud. I, uh, I did suggest to him that he may need to do some backwards running in this one. He scoff- I, won't say, I say he scoffed at me, but he didn't really scoff. He was just like, like I know that already, but sounds like he needed to use it. It was the downhill year this year, Chris, and that is yes. such a different game running downhill. There's no way to prep for it. I remember a couple of days before, a couple of weeks before it, we had some workouts and John was like, should I flip the effort and do hard downhill instead of uphill? I said, brother, if you're not ready, you're not ready. There's nothing we can do now <laughs> to make the situation worse. So um, John is such a tough runner. You know, Chris, for a relative neophyte, this guy, he's fearless. He goes after everything. He has big, crazy goals. And damn if he doesn't nearly knock them off every single time. I know he had a bit of a tough string before he came to Team Rogue, but I think the energy of that group, the the accountability of that group, and just you know the level the level of of studliness that is with that group has sort of inspired him to do even better. And um, you know he had a, he had a really really good day. It was a, a huge kudos to him for getting sub nine. That's something he wanted really badly. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Devin, I think, was was further behind, was taking it more casually, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sure he didn't even wear a watch. (laughs) Right, right. I think he finished somewhere under 12 hours, which is the the cutoff. 
maybe he was like 11 something. Anyway, congrats to those two. Up front, you had the defending champion on the men's side repeat and also earn his third comrades win, which is, I'm going to butcher his name, Bong Musa Thembu from South Africa. Continuing a string for the men's side, at least, of I think it's nine straight South African winners on the men's side. And he's got three of those, including three of the last five. He basically hung around with the leaders until about four hours and 15 minutes, and then dropped the hammer and ran away from everybody. Pretty straightforward race for Thembu. And he was one of seven South Africans in the top 10. So this is still a race that's heavily dominated by the South Africans who are able to really get out and train on this course. Of course, this year, slightly different from most down years, is a little bit longer, ended up over 90K, so about 56 miles total downhill. Tough, tough course. And then on the women's side, you had another South African win. But not a favorite woman by the name of Ann Ashworth, a 248 marathoner, and might have been in the mix for a top 10 if people had asked or if you'd asked people beforehand, but wasn't among the favorites and ended up getting the win. So big win for Ann Ashworth to, to get the South Africans back on top of the podium. Last year, the American Camille Heron won in. Only the becoming only the second U.S. female to win this race. So big results out of comrades. Always yeah. a bucket list for one. You know, one thing I'd forgotten as I was looking back through the winners, I'd forgotten that Salazar had won comrades. Yeah, back in the day, he like, he had a, he has a resume. If you throw comrades in there too. Yeah, it was his first return from retirement. Really impressive. And he's still the only American man, I think, to win Comrades, yeah. which is impressive. And Trayson won it twice, back-to-back. And then, of course, Camille Heron last year. So there you go. Comrades, the ultimate ultra for those that want to have a bucket list race to do. I know John would happily share his tips for this race if you want to get in touch with him through us. Congrats to John. Congrats to Devin. Congrats to all of those who finished the down year. Hopefully your quads are, are going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. A couple more things. We'll finish, Steve, with NCAAs, which are, which are big kind of events to talk about. But a couple other things in the interim. Big announcement today from Mo Farah that he's going to be showing up in Chicago to try to knock De- uh, Galen Rupp off of his uh, podium from last year. So Farah versus Rupp. Finally, we've got legit competition for Rupp in a race. And this one's going to be interesting. What would you say, Steve, if you had to give the way too early predictions on Rupp versus Farah? I mean, I think I saw somewhere recently that somebody said the last time that Mo Farah was beaten by Galen Rupp was a preliminary round of some of some championship 1500, no, some random 1500 or something like 25 years ago. So, I mean, I really don't know how anyone in their right mind, at least at this point in time, could say that Galen um, would have the edge over Mo, except that he's run a few more, he's run a little bit more marathoning consistently. But Mo's result at London 
Um, you know, it it definitely I would have said it would have been closer, but way Mo ran London and the in the manner in which he did it, in the conditions in which he did it. I think right now I'd have to pick I'd have to go with Mo. But I do think Gala it's gonna make an interesting race. It's gonna make it definitely an interesting byline. Are they gonna play up the post Salazar situation? Um, you know, this is the Nike US marathon, basically. Nike puts all a ton of money into this. So how does that all play into it? Gonna be an interesting scenario as we get closer. Um, it definitely has made Chicago something more interesting to talk about than it would have been otherwise. Um, of course, we've got Kipchoge who committed back to going to Berlin again. That happened this week. This week they announced that, or, or early last week, I can't remember. Um, and uh, so we'll have, you know, in, in pretty rapid succession, two pretty solid races with some interesting bylines and storylines. Now, the one thing about Chicago that's going to be interesting for Farah is he's never run a marathon that wasn't paced. Well, it's going to be paced, Chris. Is it? Yes, they announced that it will be paid. Really? Yes. I didn't see that. I think that was part of the deal. Yes. Interesting. That is going to be paced as well. Yep. Wow. That is news. That is big news because Chicago has gone without pacers for a while. But yeah, I'm seeing it now here in the headline. They're going to bring back no, pacers. It, well, it, it, that makes me a little bit... I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a little frustrated with Chicago. They just seem to be... You would think over all the years, the amount of world records, the kind of quality class of the classes of field and the way that they and the rate. And you and I know, Chris, that is by far the best race in America. I mean, it is just best put on marathon. It's so smooth. It's so easy to watch. It's so much fun. And they keep stumbling and like making different choices. Why do they even go this direction? I understood why they went there, but now it seems super weird that they flip flop to get an athlete. And I don't know all the other things about the. Chicago Marathon, I love, but this part, this sort of uh, wishy-washy leadership thing, worries me a bit. But anyway, good for us because it'll be a great race, and with Pacers in it, it will make things very, very interesting. Because if they didn't have Pacers, Chris, this would literally be a ten thousand meters at the World Championships with Galen Rupp getting left in Mo Farah's dust over the last <laughs> fifty meters. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what pace they choose. You got to think that Rupp's going to want the American record. I, so think Mo will, I think I think Mo will ask for a world record because it's a safe place to try it. You know what I mean? If the weather's okay, what happens? He gets beat by Galen. It's not going to hurt him, and he get beat by Galen. You know, so I think you might see two races. Would and would Galen go with Mo if Mo wanted world record pace? I don't know. It'd be interesting. It will be interesting. We know Kipchoge is going to be going after the world record. So I by the time Chicago. It'll be a different world yeah, record. It'll be a different world record, potentially. <laughs> but Farah and Rupp's, their marathon PRs are now only 14 seconds apart in low 206 range. So this will be fascinating both to see what pace they choose, but also how the head, head-to-head plays out. So we've got that to look forward to in the fall, early October, for that race. So... Next thing we got to talk about, Steve, is a little redux on the Asbel Kiprop situation. We've talked about his, him several episodes ago. He had an EPO positive, came out with a ridiculous statement on Facebook about how he was, you know, basically extorted, but he willingly paid them. And then while he was paying them, they must have contaminated his sample, et cetera, et cetera. Crazy, crazy Facebook post about how this all went down and how he was innocent. And then, of course, he came out 
yesterday, basically, with another statement that, that now says, and I'll read part of it, I'm financially weak to challenge my accuser, the IAAF, whom, I've, whom I have always worked hard for to bring the best in me for the sport and myself. However, I'm rich in truth and sincerity. This seems to mean nothing. I have let the struggle to prove my innocence go, not because I dope, but because I take the sacrifice, because I support the anti-doping campaign. Thank me later. I mean, that's a part of the statement. We'll link to the full statement in the show notes. I mean, it's just positively absurd that he would go from staunchly defending himself and his innocence to suddenly saying, I'm not going to fight it, but but no, really, you should thank me for that because this is all in support of my anti-doping campaign. I mean, it makes zero sense. Only proves his guilt in my mind. What do you think, Steve? Um, I think they need to queue up Don't Cry For Me Argentina right here. and um, Don't cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> this is what it is. You know, there's a, he had got my heartstrings just a teeny bit. That last bold statement at the end, thank me later. You know, I mean, he did. I he I think this is his only play, Chris. Right? It's his only play to 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 say I'm innocent, but not have to deal with going up against uh, getting the lawyers involved and going through all that. Um, what uh, this way he gets to say I you know you know fall on a sword and say hey I'm I'm I didn't do it but I just but I'm not going to make this any worse. Um, and everyone else will be thankful. I, so my question there is, in that last statement, you'll thank me later. I was like, what will we thank you for? Like, what what will we thank you for? And what scenario would we say, oh, Asbel Kiprop, he was definitely proven true with his statement of deciding not to go against the the IAAF ruling. It's like, what's going on here? Like, I, I, I it played on my heartstrings, Chris, because I think this guy's batshit crazy. I think he's fine. <laughs> I'm going to thank him for not... Ha- for not making us go through the charade <laughs> anymore. You know, at least he's going to just serve his ban as he should. But I mean, really it's a smart move from his standpoint, it to is. be honest. I mean, he's, yeah. he's in my opinion, obviously guilty to, to, you know, he would only, and obviously his agent Rosa is hanging him out to dry. Isn't going to be coming to his support as we suspected. So he's going to have to fund his fight on his own. But if you know you're guilty, why would you do that? Because you're probably going to lose anyway, spend a bunch of money doing it, plus delay your, your ban. So in this case, you can you know, save some money, get the ban out of the way, and then you know, perhaps in one to two years, depending on how severely they come down on him, be back competing again, again you know, potentially in time for the next Olympics, depending on how it plays out. Yep. So it, it's not a bad move from his standpoint if, if you assume his guilt but it's still sort of silly how he's trying to you know he's trying to make us thank him somehow for the for all of this but anyway thank you i will thank you asbel for ending the charade and confirming what we all know which is that you're a drug cheat ch- drug cheat okay so there's other things to cover steve but we're gonna We'll cover those on other episodes because we got to talk about NCAAs. We don't talk a lot about college action on this podcast because we're obsessed with the pros and it's a lot. But we do have to talk about the last meet 
at Hayward Field, which just went down and NCAA championships that happened there. Really, really fascinating storylines on so many different levels from a different event level, you know, sprints, endurance. Also, the team competitions were off the chain. You had some, literally some all-time best or at least top five all-time times, particularly in the 400 events, which was just crazy. You had this crazy come from behind win and you in uh, the USA in, by USC in the 4x4 to get the championship on the women's side. Just so many different storylines. I want to start with Ben Flanagan, <laughs> who is a Michigan athlete who won the men's 10,000. He came in seated, I think, 23rd or 24th in the meet with his, with his time and somehow pulled off the win off of a pretty hot pace at the beginning. He was able to survive and, and gut it out longer than everybody else. He crosses the finish line. First two things he says twice is, where's my mom? Where's my mom? <laughs> so just a really cool story. You know, really cool story from clearly a blue-collar collegiate runner from the University of Michigan who didn't expect to get what he got and was able to pull it off. What's your take on that men's 10K? 25 years ago, Chris, I was standing on the starting line at the NCAA Championships in the 10,000 meters, 1993. We were in New Orleans at Tad Gormley Stadium. It was hotter than fucking shit. Jonah Kowetsch took the pace out in 420 for the first mile, burned us all out. If I think if we hadn't, and so I tell you that story, number one, because listeners have some interest in what we do, who we are as people, but also that... I didn't get, I, I, I read Ben Fanning's story and I say, that's why you hang on. That's why you go with the leaders no matter what. That's why you don't cry and whine about the weather, which, which I was on our uh, Pet Peeves episode, because you never know. And Ben, it was, a hot, it was a hot race, but it wasn't hot conditions. And dude, he gets it done. Every athlete at that level should look at that result and realize, especially on the men's side of the equation, you always have a shot. If you just stay in it long enough and you keep your nose in there long enough, you've got a shot. This guy's an NCAA championship champion. He'll be an NCAA champion, champion for the rest of his life. I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be more excited because I know that struggle and I know that fight. And when guys like that win, it makes me feel so good and so much better. That's some, you know, imported Kenyan from University of Alabama getting on the starting line four of them, I think, or three of them that they had in that race. Um, I have a good friend who coaches at Alabama, Mr. Trouble. I apologize. I'm not denigrating you personally. I'm just saying I don't really like that game. I don't like that role. Um, and I think it's so cool to see Ben Flanagan, working man's hero, win an NCAA championship. It just makes my heart glow. It's, it's an amazing, awesome thing. And he did it in a PR, 28-34 as a senior in his last collegiate race, dropped the mic and then he asked, it's all you can ask for. It's as good as and he can. asked for his mom at the finish line. <laughs> Just so, so cool. So let's talk about the men's steeple, Steve. We've, we had another hot pace from the beginning from the university of Houston athlete, Brian Barraza, who went off the front. Initially, nobody really went with him. And so he got a gap, which, was fading going into the last lap. It was down to 10 or 15 meters. And as he hit the first hurdle on the backstretch of that final lap with about 300 meters to go, he didn't clear it. Cool. 
Nip, nip the hurdle, face planted. Been there. Got up, got up and was wobbly afterwards. Ended up finishing 10th out of 12 in that final. And not, not, uh, not even getting near the win. The winners ended up about 12 seconds up. Apsa Lee from the University of Minnesota, Jamin Coleman from Eastern Kentucky, Stephen Fahey from Stanford were one, two, three. But you had the U of H athlete go for it, Steve. What were your what were your thoughts on his tactics? I mean, I think it was it it almost pulled off. So the one thing that our listeners need to realize is that Houston was in the running for a national title as a team. They'd won, set the collegiate record in the four by um one. They had great results from uh, Leroy Burrell's son uh, in the hundred, and they just they were killing it. And this they but they knew they had a very small margin of error for error. They didn't have a four by four, and they needed to get as many points as they could. And uh, Coach Magnus set up a plan for Brian that said, "Let's go for it. We think if we get away, we can stay away." You know, Brian Barraza comes from a small school in Texas. He has he, I know because John Hayes when I was at coaching at Texas, the women. John Hayes coached the men, and he really wanted Brian Barraza. He saw him um, as a great athlete, potentially a steeplechaser, just as Steve uh, Magnus saw him as. So this isn't really a surprise for local Texas people that he was this ballsy and went after it because he's been a good runner at the state level. But I don't think he had any other choice. I think if he did try to come from behind, um, he might not have been able to get where he needed to be. You know, So they made it a strategic decision. Um, it might have won them the national title as a team, but because he fell, they don't. But I know his teammates were, I'm sure, proud of his tactics and proud of the way that he went after it. And I mean, what else? You, what else can you ask for? I mean, if he clears that hurdle and stays away, um, it's a whole different scenario being told. And um, that's what sport is, Chris. That's what it's all about. It's about having these chances, um, taking big chances. And, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Yeah, you got to give him props. I, it's hard to me to know how he would have finished had he not clipped that hurdle. He was getting a little wobbly beforehand anyway, so clearly was feeling that hot pace. I have a sense that he was probably going to drop to at least third or fourth anyway in the final 300. But the only way he was going to win was the tactics that he that he showed and we'll never know now how it would have played out had he been able to clear those final hurdles but you got to give him credit for going for it for sure i i believe so i think it's a ballsy move and i credit he and his coach for having the courage to do that so then elsewhere on the men's side you had some just absolutely crazy 400 action <laughs> in the in the 400 flat the 400 hurdles and the the 400 flat race michael norman from usc ran a collegiate record of 4361 <laughs> to win that race which is a world class time absolutely insanely fast on a day that was wet and relatively cold the kind of day that sprinters absolutely hate about Hayward Field. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's, it's almost like you can't even put into words what he was able to accomplish with that time in those conditions. What do you make of it? But Chris, I think this is the thing that is so amazing about the collegiate game is that 
I think that I feeling a little chastised after watching this meet for not having storylines played out, Chris, last week or the week before that for our listeners to watch it. Because the thing that I will tell you, not only not only is it an amazing competition to watch, but you even with terrible weather conditions, even in the most egregious situations, the athletes still show up at that level because this is their opportunity. This is the way they go pro. This is how they make it. They have to be seen on the largest stage at the most important time, showing up and getting it done because they don't have some guy to throw them the ball at just the right time or feed them an alley-oop or get them a, you know, get the ball up into the midfield just, just so they can kick the goal in. You know, this is a one person game and this is the biggest stage for these athletes and the way they show up at the NCAA championships year after year and the way this meet just keeps getting better and better. Chris, I think it is potentially the best meet in the world every year, not because the fastest times, although this year there were a lot of fast times and terrible conditions, but just because you're going to be seeing the future of the sport in most cases, at least from the short sprints on the U.S. side, um, you know, not necessarily the Jamaicans, but almost everybody else is, is competing. And you're definitely seeing the next greatest in the U.S. at every level. So, you know, Chris, a couple of years ago, the NCAA decided and the Coaches Association decided to turn this meet into two different. It's a four day meet, but to do a men's side for two days and then the women's side for two days. And I was very against this when they came up with this idea, primarily because my mentor, Bev Kearney, who I was coaching with at UT, thought it was going to be very negative for the women's side, that people wouldn't be paying attention to the women's races and that maybe the men would overwhelm the women and that they would it would be the same old storyline but chris i'm very happy that this is not this did not play out what an incredible meet and what a way to watch it if you were watching it on C- on nbc or if you're watching it on tv they played that out i mean of course the coverage was still short and not enough but they did play up those storylines to go into those national to going into that national championship run up to allow the kind of big bang that we saw when usc finishes when kendall ellis closes down those that girl from Purdue. Oh my God, that girl from Purdue is going to live that one down for forever. But the way they, the way they played that out and the the team title and the way the team title came to play with all of that was just masterful. And it made it mean so much more. And so I tip my hat to the NCAA and the coaches association for being more right than me. Um, That, that opportunity that USC had for the women's side made that event, the women's sport be just as important on that day as the men's was the day before. And, you know, we know in almost every other sport, that's not true at the, at the collegiate level. Yeah, it was great. It was great to see it play out that way and, and to give the women's side its own moment. Finishing up the men's quickly on the 400 hurdles. So you had collegiate record on the 400 flat race. And then Rye Benjamin from USC came back and won the 400 hurdles in 47.02, which is the second fastest time ever. Not just a collegiate record, but the second fastest time ever, tying the great Edwin Moses for the second fastest time in the history of that sport across all levels. So just unbelievable results there in the men's 400s. On the women's side, I, I didn't get to catch as much of it. I caught at least in terms of the distance stuff, I did catch the women's 15. One thing I was impressed by with that race, which was run, which was won by an Australian athlete from the University of Oregon, is 
that it was it was pretty fast. Yep. I mean, I believe the winning time was was four oh eight. That's pretty quick, Chris. For, yeah, for a championship meet in you know relatively cold and wet conditions isn't you know you wouldn't expect a fast time for championship championship style racing in kind of crapping conditions you'd expect them to kind of dawdle and then go but you know not only was it fast in terms of a championship meet but also just fast in general and continues to give you more evidence that women's distance running across a lot of countries including the US is just crushing it right now. It's just getting better and better and better. But Chris, that four by four. Holy <laughs> the four shit, by dude. four. Holy it, shit. I mean it made it made ESPN top ten. I was on. It's so awesome, man. It's so yeah. awesome. So the so yeah, just at the table, USC came in needing to win. They needed ten points to beat Georgia for the women's team title. And their runner, their final runner, their anchor leg, got the baton and was what, probably forty meters? Fifty meters behind the lead. Forty meters behind what we saw her at when the when the Purdue athlete got to two hundred meters, she was thirty meters maybe behind. It was it was a long and about twenty twenty five going into the final hundred. Just walked her down in the final hundred, covering an unbelievable gap to just edge her with the lean at the line and get the title. Ellis, Ellis Kendall Ellis, who was the the hero of the anchor leg there for USC. I mean, and, and she collapsed to the track. I mean, she she couldn't breathe. They they were trying to get an interview of her right away, but there was just no way. She was completely done. Unbelievable right way to win by a single point over Georgia. Yeah. Four, 53 points to 52 points, USC over Georgia. Unbelievable. And you really, you can't take any, anything away from the Purdue athlete. You know, clearly their strategy, and we, you know, we don't want to go into a, a dialogue on relay strategy, but clearly their strategy was to put their best runners at the beginning to try to get a big lead. And maybe their best runner wasn't on the anchor leg, and it was all about trying to to hold it. But her split, Denia Mitchell from Purdue, her split was 52 seconds on that final anchor leg versus Kendall Ellis, who split 50 flat. <laughs> so beat her by two seconds on the yeah. anchor that on the anchor leg. And then finally for the women, you got to talk about Sydney McLaughlin. Her final collegiate race, we've talked about her as an Olympian 400-meter hurdle runner here on this podcast. We've talked about her collegiate career where she killed it at indoors this year in, in non-hurdle events and then came back and won the, the 400 hurdles on the women's side and then announced she was turning pro and will be competing, I'm sure, in Diamond League meets later this year as as she takes takes a pro it'd be interesting to see she was coy on what what her who her sponsor might be so that'll be interesting i would be shocked if it wasn't nike given the the kentucky nike connection but we will see although the kentucky nike connection is meaningless now isn't it chris (laughs) fair enough (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. So yes. Last bit of news is the Kentucky coach is going to become the head head coach at University of Texas here, starting next season, which is an absolutely huge get for the University of Texas. It's it's our new athletic director's first official hire, and he knocked it out of the park with this one. No doubt, Chris. No doubt. I mean, we've got you got so Edric Floriel, who's a, a a Razorback, NCAA champion, Olympian. Um, he coached at the University of Stanford. Coached at Kentucky for a while, then went to University of Stanford. Was coached there and did great things. He's a jumps coach by trade. He was a triple jumper himself, but he's become the best 400 hurdles or hurdle coach in the world, Chris. Corey Carter just won the world championships last year. He's coached Kenny Harrison. He coaches Sidney McLaughlin. He's known for 400 meter talent and is absolute 400 hurdle talent is absolutely kills it in both the short hurdles and the long hurdles. Um, he knows how to craft a team and put a group of people together that will be focused on getting points in the distance, getting points in the throws, getting perks in the, in the field events, getting points everywhere. He will hire the best at the best coaches to, on that staff, and they will be winning very quickly at the NCAA championships. In my opinion, I say three years, Chris, and University of Texas will be on the top step as the NCAA champions on the men's side or the women's side. We'll see which way. But this is a huge grab for the University of Texas. I'm sure they had to dig deep into that uh, into that piggy bank to make this happen. Um, but what's really cool, Chris, is that. Corey Carter, Kenny Harrison, and now Sydney McLaughlin. Will they now be Austinites? Will we be seeing them around town? That would be super cool um, to see some of the greatest 400 runners in the world um, training on Town Lake Hike and Bike Trail, getting some miles in. You know, that would be a pretty sweet thing. But kudos to the University of Texas for getting easy E, as they call him. They say he's easy, 20 points at the NCAA championships year in, year out. And that gets you in the top 10 nearly, nearly every year. I think he's done it like 15 years in a row. His teams have been like scored in the top 10 at the NCAA championships because he knows how to get points. He knows how to get them across disciplines, and he's perfect for the University of Texas. This is a huge win for UT. Yeah, I give him two years. I think three years is too many. I mean, I think he's got a young crop of talent on the distance side. We know he can make magic quickly on the sprints. So well, I think in two years, you're going to well, see you know, them. Also, Tanja Buford-Bailey, who was the former... Um, interim head coach and was the sprint coach at Texas for the last few years. She had a ball a, a bomb recruiting class this year, an incredible recruiting class. And so it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Those athletes cannot decommit from their commitment the first year. They need to compete their first year. They can transfer after that. But nobody knows where Tanja is going to be. She's already stated, in fact, she started stated officially she's not going to be back at UT. So It'll be interesting to see what that happens, but they already have an incredible recruiting class. And on the men's side, we know from the distances, they've got points ready to go. I mean, I think John Rice is going to score points, as we talked about in the steeple. And obviously, Sam, he, you know, he was on the podium at the NCAA championships as a true freshman. Those are serious points there. Whether they stay with Brad Herbstreet or whether they go to a different coach, it doesn't really matter. They're going to get a good coach who knows what he's doing or she's doing, and they will score points with the staff that they have, with the athletes they have on that roster. So you're right. It might be even sooner. I don't know. Uh, we shall see. Exciting for Texas fans, though. 
I'm excited, right. man. I'm hooking horns. I am so excited. This is really good news for us. All right, we've we've introed way too long, so let's get to our our listener questions episode. And as I mentioned, Steve, I've got a little bit of a softball for you here to lead things out. So I'm going to tee this one up. I want to get your reaction, and then we will we'll get mine. So here we go. This is from Mary Margaret from Lawrence, Kansas. She says, "Hi guys, I'm a 43 year old mom of four living in Lawrence, Kansas." I love to run and want to get faster and show my kids what it looks like to set goals and work to achieve them. I've done several half marathons and felt pretty good about those. My one marathon six years ago was not a great experience. I started too fast and spent the last six miles looking for a bridge off which to leap. (laughs) I'm I'm training for Twin Cities and my training plan is far more thorough and thoughtful. But here's my dilemma. I hear you guys say, go for your goal, no plan B. And that means start at goal pace, right? Question mark. I'm having trouble trusting that I'll be able to sustain goal pace when my long runs are slower. I want to finish strong and happy. My half marathons have been run around 150. I'd say I'm slow, but Chris would fuss at me. So I'll just say I want to run under four. But you probably know that what I really mean is I want Boston. <laughs> I'm addicted to your podcast. It's the absolute best. Mary Margaret. What a question. What a question. So basically. That was a lot of information there, Chris, but let's get it. The first thing she's saying is, what's the deal with no plan B, right? Which is pretty much a great question because a lot of people, we've made that statement a few times and I'm not sure that we've completely, well, we've gone over it some, but I'd like to, I'd like to get a little more nuanced with that. But then the second question is, so no plan B, but I've got an aggressive goal, right? So that's basically the crux of this question, right? Am I correct before I go rambling off into the- Well, that's part A. I think part B is- because it's also in her subject, which I didn't mention, but she says in her subject line, how can I trust the slow long runs? So I think she's also wrestling with this idea of how can I hold goal pace for 26 miles if I am doing my long run slower? So the first point is, let's go to plan B. Let's do the plan B question because she threw it out there. It was the first thing I heard. So we do not believe in plan B, but that's because you've done a plan A training program from start to finish and dialed in whether or not Plan A is actually a realistic thing. So some future moment, some future date, some future day, you don't necessarily know whether or not you're going to be ready to go for that race until you do the miles, put the long runs in, put the quality work in and everything else. So don't worry about plan B right now. Worry about only focus on plan A and do the training for plan A. And then maybe what you think your current plan B is becomes your plan A. Right, Chris? So that's the first thing I say is let's wait and see what happens with training. On the second side is, you know, I don't know how in the world we can ever convince people, Chris. This question comes up over and over again, right? And I understand why people are a little bit at a loss for understanding how the long, slow, and I say slow, I don't mean slow, slow, but how running slower than your marathon goal pace helps you to be ready for your race. And this is why it works, Chris, because if you do a program that is well-balanced in all energy systems and is working on all of the different cap, all the different paces from 5K pace to 10K pace, the half marathon pace, the marathon pace, and all the other things that might fit in between, 
then you are a very well-balanced athlete that has worked a whole lot of different ends of this, all ends of the spectrum. And your long, easy long run day is just putting money in your piggy bank. It's just putting money in the bank, putting money in the bank. You've said this a dozen times, Chris, if you've said it once. What happens? You run slower. You build mitochondria. The mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. They get that oxygen out to the working muscles. You're able to run further, faster, with less effort. All that happens by running slow. So what's happening is, is people are basically thinking, oh, if, I, if it's not more pain, more gain, then I can't win. Well, guess what, people? That's not the way the universe works. It's not the way nature works. It's not the way anything works. It's all about working hard, taking breaks, recuperating, recovering, then working hard, taking breaks, recuperating, recovery, over and over again across a wide variety of different pace structures that all hit different physiological checkboxes, and bam, you're ready to run your A goal time. Why? Because you did everything, and you followed a well-thought-out, consistent program, and your easy runs, they're not that big a deal. Chris, there's one thing that I think is really important, though, that we need to talk about, and that's a hard or a quality long run. We, we ask our athletes to consistently, you know, once a month, um, usually, sometimes even as we get closer to race date, it might even come in, in rapid succession week by week. We ask our athletes to do a long run with many, many, with a lot of work done at race pace or faster. And so, you know, a well-nuanced and a well-based training plan will have workouts that should allow you to feel comfortable and confident that your plan A is achievable, even if it's a stretch, but it's at least reasonably achievable because you did some hard, long quality sessions in the context of your training. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox. I feel all wrapped, riled up and excited now. But um, <laughs> anyway, thanks for that softball, Chris. I don't know if I, if I smashed it uh, into a home run or if I knocked it in the dirt right in front of me. I'm not sure which, but you can tell me. <laughs> so you did awesome, Steve, as always. I'm going to address the second thing first, and then I'll come back to add a couple points on the plan A versus plan B. On this question of do slower long, slower long runs work, then I guess I would ask Mary Margaret to think through who she's going to trust, right? Because option one would be to trust you and I, who have combined over 40 years of coaching experience with literally thousands of athletes that we've coached to goals, successfully coached to their goals based on this training protocol who have also produced now over 120 hours of podcast content, basically dedicated to this principle. I mean, we talk about other things, but if there's a principle that we drive home, that's certainly one of them. So, you know, she might choose given that this is our calling in life to trust us and have faith that if she approaches her long runs that way, that it will pay off for her on race day. But she doesn't have to trust us. She could trust the scientists because science would say that if you're doing all your long runs at a marathon goal pace, then you're actually in basically a physiological no man's land where you're not really working any of the systems in an optimized way. And so the science would tell you that proving to yourself that you can do long runs at marathon goal pace actually puts you in a place where you're not training optimally 
reducing the chance that you can run marathon gold pace for 26.2 miles. So she could trust the scientists if she wants, if she didn't trust us. She could also trust the elite athletes because I guarantee you Shalane Flanagan and Desiree Linden and Amy Hastings-Craig, even Jordan Hesse, isn't doing or aren't doing their long runs at marathon gold pace. Now, I know Shalane and Amy Hastings-Craig put in a ton of 25 milers as a part of their program with Schumacher. And they're doing those at 8,000 feet, very, at 8, in various ways at 8,000 feet <laughs> yeah, at, a, at, a, at a comfortable conversational pace so they can build those mitochondria and those blood vessels. So she might choose to trust those athletes and coaches if they don't, if she doesn't trust us or the scientists and, and just rely on the elite athletes. And finally, if, if that's not enough, Mary Margaret, then I will, I will, put this down, which is that if you follow a program and train appropriately doing your long runs for the most part at a minute or so slower than your target marathon goal pace or slower. And, you know, and you're following a structured program with speed workouts during the week and so forth, doing that in a thorough way, whether you're following our program or not, given the fact that you've run 150 for the half, I will guarantee you, Mary Margaret, that you can break four hours at Twin Cities. I will guarantee you, but the only caveat being that you email me with your race plan and follow it on race day. So there you go. That's like four different layers of, of things that you can rely on or trust. And then if that doesn't work, then I'll, I'll guarantee you well, that you, it'll happen. You, okay. And then you just got to go do it. You could guarantee somebody something. What does that mean? What are you going to do? What's the, where's your skin in the game? What does that mean? Okay, my skin in the game is I will I will send her money for her race entry. I'll pay back her race entry. Oh, she there we go. Hours. That's awesome. There we go. All right. <laughs> now we Personally, got out of my pocket. Yes. Yeah. So I'll but guarantee I'll it, and I'll pay for your race if if you follow this protocol listen to our advice and chris and then, i'll split it you know, with you the only caveat being okay all right I'll split we'll, put it, we'll go in together yeah. so there you go mary margaret how about how is that for guaranteed the only caveat being that you have to share with us your race plan so email me again no 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 you said your race. Had to, she had to to look at our race plan and follow our race plan what is that yeah, yeah but yeah yeah email me before that we'll get a race plan together together and if you follow that plan and don't get, Chris, I think we should even then... up the ante. I think that we should. I should also pay her entry fee. So if she does, I'll. She'll make money. Okay. How about that? so we both put in the entry fee twin for city. Twin Cities? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. <laughs> so there you go. So there you go. We just guaranteed your result, Mary Margaret. Given that you've run a one fifty, I think. For the half, that translates, you know, and I haven't done the McMillan calculator math, but in my coach math, to somewhere around a 350 to 355 for the marathon, which tells me that you have a four hour marathon in you. It's just a matter of doing the work at the right paces. Whose training plan is she following? Do we know? Did she say anything about what she does? Uh, we should find out. Let us know. We'll give you a little guidance on that if you need it, Mar Mary Margaret, because yeah. we want, yeah. we don't want to just throw money at you, but. I promise you, if you trust us on this, 
you'll get there. And if you don't, you're 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 making money on the deal. So Chris, you have nothing to that, lose. I do, and I do think that even if I didn't know her training program, if she would trust us enough in that principal question of whether the slow, slower, easy runs will help her get where she needs to be, then um, it's worth it by itself, even if it's just that. So. Yeah, I don't really care. I mean, if, honestly, like if the if she's following any program of that's worth anything at all, then I think she'll get there. Yeah. But send us an email, Mary Margaret, to confirm that you've heard this. We will gladly pay your entry fee. Let us know what you're training, who you're training with, or what program you're following. We'll give you a little guidance there, and then of course we'll talk about a race plan as we get closer. But you have nothing to lose, and actually only money to make, which is which is awesome. And then going back to the first piece about no plan B, part of what we, well, part of why we recommend that is because if you have a plan B in your head, then you're giving yourself an out before the race even starts. And we need you to be in a mental place where you've so dialed into our, to your purpose for the race and for the goal that you don't give yourselves any outs that you basically give everything towards that a goal so that when you finish, whether you get the goal or not, you can at least say, hey, I gave everything I could. I left everything on the course. And so it's, it's not just a, a physical thing. It's also a mental thing, not having a plan B. All right. Cool. There you go. Mary Margaret got way more than she bargained for there. You know, but that's exciting. You ask for a little bit, we give you the fire hose. <laughs> All right, next question, Steve. This one I'm going to throw to myself first, but I'll tee it up so you can respond too. First of all, this is from Jinghuan. I'm going to probably mispronounce that, but Jinghuan, I hope I got that right. She says, by way of intro, first of all, she says, I'm a huge, huge fan of your podcast. I love your training philosophies, the running rants, and all of your race prediction and analysis. You guys rock seriously with two exclamation points. So thank you, Jing Wan, for listening. This one, this question fits into my wheelhouse because she talks about some, some stress fracture stuff, which I've dealt with. So here, here, here are, here, here's a little intro and then she has a couple questions. She says, I'm at the tail end of a stress fracture in my fibula. I was diagnosed with it eight weeks before Boston, was able to maintain a certain level of fitness with pool running, cycling, and lifting. Ran Boston with the injury, which did not help with recovery. Now it's June and I'm still (laughs) injured. No shit, Sherlock. (laughs) (laughs) All my friends are like, wait, you're still injured? I'm just sick and tired of not being able to run. So her questions, which she has sort of three parts that she bulleted here for us. She says, what can I do before a full recovery to stay in relative shape and stay sane? Then she asks, when I'm fully recovered, and I hope that day will come soon, how gradual should my training build back be? And she also asks for book recommendation because she's going out of her mind and (laughs) driving everyone crazy, so she needs something to occupy herself. So she's asking for a book recommendation. I got one for her. But anyway, you go ahead, Chris. In the interim. All right, so... Stress fractures, and just for context, I've dealt with three in my life. Two running-related, one actually volleyball-related, which is crazy. I had a stress fracture in my arm from playing about four hours of volleyball a day when I was moonlighting as a volleyball player in college. 
And but anyway, but I've dealt with two running stress fractures, one in my tibia, one in my heel, the calcaneus. Neither were fun at all. And so I I understand the injury you're dealing with, Jing Wan, and I I'm sorry you're going through this, but the stress fracture is really the only injury in running, I think, where basically you shouldn't be running and and really you shouldn't be doing anything that promotes pain. So, and that's one of the big mistakes that people make with stress fractures is that they might not be running, but they're doing other things. Sometimes cycling, cross training, swimming, lifting in some way could still be causing pain depending on the movement patterns that bother you. And that pain is causing tension that's preventing healing in your bone. So rule number one, Unfortunately, Jingwan, is that you probably need to take some time completely off of everything. Now, it's hard to know exactly how long because I'm not your doctor, even though I play one on the podcast and on (laughs) Wednesday mornings here at Rogue, (laughs) but probably somewhere between two and three weeks completely off of everything, every single activity. So I want you to do nothing for two to three weeks. And then you're probably going to need beyond that another five to potentially eight or nine weeks. Additionally, where you're not running, but you're able to introduce some cross training to the equation. But the rule that you need to follow is let pain be your guide. And if you have any pain doing any activity, or if you're having pain walking still, then I would say no activity until you ha- you're pain-free walking and then add in, you know, then you can add in some cross training as long as there's no pain, but you're going to need probably 10 weeks completely off of running, given that you probably refractured it at Boston and maybe even longer. And in fact, at this point, I would probably wait until you get the clear from an orthopedist to resume running because it, you know, a stress fracture that's been going on for that long, especially in your fibula, is probably going to show up on imaging at this point. And so you should be able to get a definitive ruling from a doctor on when to return to running or impact sports by looking at your imaging or tracking your imaging through this. But unfortunately, the bad news is you need to cut out all of activity for a short period of time, like I said, two to three weeks, and then probably quit running altogether for eight to 10 weeks total until your doctor says you can do it again. That's just the harsh reality. If you had not run Boston, you probably wouldn't be in this situation, but here we are. So we can't go back now. The most important thing is that you heal completely and you don't have a second relapse because that, that's exactly what happened to me with my first stress fracture. I had a tibial stress fracture that was brought on by shin splints. Resumed running too quickly, re-injured it, and then ultimately had to take three months off in order to get back to where I needed to be and resume running in that situation. So that's where you are. You're going to, you're going to have more time off. And at this point you need to recognize that the long-term game is what's most important, not re-injuring it. Take the time off more than you think you need. And then we can start building back when it comes to rebuilding. Steve and I might have two different perspectives on this. So it'd be interesting to see both of them. But my general rule of thumb is that the first 
thing when you're coming back from an injury like this is that you want to rebuild your days running first and then rebuild your mileage on those days second, starting with the longer run of the week. And so what does that look like? And because you want to build days gradually, especially after an injury like this. So it might look like starting with three days a week. When I came back from my heel stress fracture, I was doing three days a week for 20 minutes at a time. Really easy running when I, re- when I resumed running. And then I added a fourth day of 20 minutes, fifth day of 20 minutes, a sixth day of 20 minutes because that's my normal routine. And then once I was comfortable with six days of 20 minutes, I started rebuilding those days by starting by building two of those two out of the six days. And then as things were comfortable, I, would, I started to ramp a little bit faster. But I was rebuilding days first with short, easy runs and then adding time to a couple of those days. And then once I got up to 60 minutes of running, adding five to 10 minutes per week based on you know, feeling good as the, as the volume mounted. Then I was able to kind of resume a more aggressive ramp back to my normal levels because I was pretty comfortable at that point that everything was working. But it was a really patient process. And unfortunately, these types of injuries require that kind of patience. I know that's not happy or good news, but hopefully we can give you a couple of book recommendations to get you through it. But you absolutely need to take your time with this. Otherwise, you're going to get re-injured and you're going to be emailing us again in three months wondering why you're still hurt. So bite the bullet now, take your medicine, take the time off, and then rebuild very gradually. What say you, Steve? And then give us your book recommendation. Well, first off, I agree with everything you said, Chris. Um, one thing I would say is one of the ni- one of the things I recommend to people with bone stress stuff that I think is really crucial in their terms of their return or coming back to fitness is they really do need to detrain that whole time because if they do a lot of cross training activities and get in the aqua jog or or try to do some other activity, sometimes their aerobic system is ready to go and their neuromuscular system isn't and it's all actually really good to go back to square tax and get to zero and then start building back because that allows you to have a much more healthy return. And if you're somebody who's already run a good number, you're already a serious runner, and it sounds like our listener is, um, you've got years and years of, of, of base you've got built underneath your system. Don't worry. You'll get back to where you need to get to. It'll happen naturally and normally and you may even be surprised with how much stronger you come back because you've taken a break and you've gotten some needed downtime but i think it's very dangerous to do too much hard quality work especially from a cross training perspective as you're returning from a bone stress injury because you're going to be fitter aerobically than your neuromuscular system is ready to take advantage of and it could lead to other issues that come up so i'll just leave that there where it is chris that's the only piece i would add now if you want a great book probably the one of I always uh, hyperbolic, aren't I, Chris? Always the greatest book of all time. Blah blah. Anyway, this book is one of my original books. It is as thick as any running book ever gets. It's by the great Dr. Tim Noakes. It's called The Lore of Running. You learn exercise physiology. You learn history. You learn training theory. You learn about so many different things about the sport of distance running. It is literally the the go-to tome that I used for so many years in 
learning my sport and it is damn near a thousand pages. Um, it doesn't matter whether you get the first edition or the 20th, 10th edition. It's all great stuff. You can pick it up at a used bookstore so often, pretty frequently, pretty inexpensively. And Chris, I don't, I, we will never probably review the lore of running on our, on our, uh, endorphin book club, uh, podcast, probably because it is so long. And how would you ever get to all of it? I won't want to say never, but, um, Chris, somebody who's got some time to kill, that's a book to read. Yes, <laughs> indeed it is. There's a hell of a lot there. <laughs> so that's absolutely, that's like the Bible. It is of, the Bible. But totally. It's the Bible of, of running. So yes, that, that should occupy you plenty for sure. And if you need a lighter choice to mix into that, which isn't altogether light in its own right, we would definitely also recommend Endure because that will be our first Endorphin Book Club book that we that we review with Alex on our episode we're recording on June 28th coming up. So if you haven't yet hit Endure, I would say do that one first. And if and, and after all that and if after all that science, you're literally bleeding out of the ears with um, you know, exercise physiology speak. Then reread it, Running with the Buffaloes, because that's a, just an incredibly amazing story about the sport of cross-country running and distance running. Um, it does come from a male perspective, but it's still, it's just great reading. It's an easy read. It's, it's, it's really probably one of the great emotional roller coasters of any book I've ever read, but especially a running-based book. So there's three, there's three recommendations for you right off the bat. Take them where you will. Go where you will. Um, but whatever you do, sit on your fucking ass for a little while. <laughs> yes. And we hope that you're able to get back quickly after that, but do, as I said, take your medicine. All right. Next question we're going to get to. This is from Brian. He says, Hey, Chris and Steve, I'm a new listener and say, I want to say, I really enjoy the podcast. Talks about going back and listening to some old ones. He says he likes the no BS way you guys present your info. It has made me laugh out loud more than once. I have a question about intermittent fasting for your next listener questions episode. He says, I've, I've heard you talk about Steve's prescribed 30 mile runs with no fuel, force your body to use fat as fuel. Chris mentioned that it is easier if you don't eat prior due to the fact that once you stimulate a glycemic response, you will eventually have the low blood sugar that comes afterwards. This made me wonder if there was a place in marathon training for intermittent fasting, maybe for some easy runs to become more efficient at using fat as fuel. I've played with a 16-8 intermittent fasting idea in the past for weight loss reasons, but never as a training tool. I've read mixed reviews about it on the internet and was wondering what you guys thought about it. Do you want to start there, Steve, or do you want me to? Yeah, it'll be short and sweet. <laughs> Go for it. Fuck bad diets. <laughs> you know, yes. sometimes you're going to have to intermittently fast and it should happen naturally and normally. Um, it's good. I think the idea of intermittent fasting comes from people feeling amazing when or having great experiences from that experience, but it was done unintended the way that the human body, I mean, we are evolutionarily designed to fast and then feed and then fast and then feed. Not to eat at 8 a.m. or 7:30 a.m. and then at noon or one and then at six or seven. We were just, we didn't that that is a completely bullshit thing. So 
intermittent fasting is actually more in alignment with what we did evolutionarily. And I'm just spouting off the top of my head. I have no MD. I have no nutrition degree. I am just a <laughs> slappy sitting here giving you ideas. But dude, you're do it or don't do it. It doesn't really matter. But it, I, it's like, why do we need more fucking bullshit to pay attention to? Can't we just get out and run 60, 70 miles a week? Can't we just eat whole foods to the best of our ability? Can't we hydrate effectively? Why do we got to do all this other crazy shit? Are you optimizing every other aspect of your life? Are you sleeping? Are you doing other things? Because why are you worried about intermittent fasting? I don't have any fucking time for that shit. I got too many other things <laughs> to do, man, to think about where and when I eat. I, mean, I also drink copious amounts of beer, so I'm probably not the guy you want to be talking to about shit like this. But my point is, yeah, intermittent fasting probably makes a whole lot of sense because we were evolutionarily designed to do it. But it's still just a bullfit fucking shit fad diet that's completely, utterly, I don't know why you would do it unless you just wanted to play with it. But why you're asking me for advice, I don't fucking know. You should ask Chris. He's got a much better attitude about it, I'm sure. <laughs> so I think the appropriate response to this one comes from a tweet that was retweeted today, actually, by Ross Tucker from the science of sport who I follow on Twitter. He was retweeting a PhD named Lane Norton and whose tweet said, this will piss off the zealots. Calorie restriction drives favorable anti-obesity and anti-diabetic outcomes. Keto isn't magic. Low fat isn't magic. Paleo isn't magic. Intermittent fasting isn't magic. But if they work for you to create a deficit, then fuck yeah. <laughs> Just don't sell them as magic. There we go. <laughs> So, there we go. So I think I think Mr. Dr. Lane Norton. Love him. He's a rogue, much, baby. That's a rogue right much, there. <laughs> pretty much nailed it. And and I think all your points are valid, which is that if you're optimizing every other thing that would come in front of this, then maybe this would be something to play with. But still, I agree with you. It's probably a fad. Incidentally, my wife is experimenting with, with intermittent fasting right now, which is a whole lot of fun to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, to deal with as a spouse, but uh, we'll leave that story for another day. But I, but I do, but I, I, the only thing I come back to here, Brian, is that I do, I do think there is something to fasted training, and so if you're going to use fasting, I think it needs to have a purpose in the context of your training. So Steve uses it in the context of that thirty miler as a as a way to help our body burn fat, but also as a way to mind fuck us to get us ready for the long haul that is 26.2 but you also will hear Alex Hutchinson talk about Hutchinson talk about the potential benefits of fasting you know doing some kind of workout on an evening fasting overnight and then doing another run or workout the next day to try to get a response for your body to adapt to basically dealing without having fuel in its system and so I think there is a place for fasting potentially when it comes to optimizing certain training responses. But when it comes to daily intermittent fasting, I don't buy it. I tend to believe what our Dr. Lane Norton here just said, which is that it's, those are all fads. If you just eat whole foods of, and, and basically anything bad in moderation and snack, in a healthy way, hydrate, sleep, you're going to be just fine. So stick yeah, to those things please, first. Please, let's just tell our listeners, 
Anything you do to maximize suffering is probably going to help you in running, right? Just take some, just take some uh, closed pins and put them on your eyelids or on your nose or, uh, you know, on your <laughs> testicle and uh, see if it hurts because it'll probably help you in your running. But that doesn't mean it's something that necessarily should be done by anybody and everybody. So, yeah. Good luck, Brian. <laughs> and thank you for listening. <laughs> Brian, we do appreciate the question, even if we came back at you pretty aggressively there. We love you, Brian. We do love you. And we're thankful that you listened to us. And I think if you really like our podcast, we won't have offended you. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully got a laugh out of that. All right. So this one, I think, is going to be our last question for the day. I think there's a lot of meat to it. So this one comes from Ariana. and. She doesn't mention where she's from, but potentially the Northeast. She talks about New York a couple times in this email. So, so she says, I stumbled upon your podcast a few days ago and have been listening furiously on all my runs this week. In the past few months, I've been particularly interested in understanding how I can target what my marathon goal pace and training paces should be, but don't think I have the expertise to get there. I ran my first two marathons in 2014 and had horrible race experience both times. I now I know now that I had no business running marathons and my training was inappropriate for the distance both times. She says parenthetically around 35 to 40 miles per week with little to no speed work. Four years later, I've been running consistently, especially in the last year and a half, and did nine plus one to qualify for the 2008 New York, City, New York City Marathon. I think that refers to a walk-around ratio potentially or maybe some kind of training plan. I trained using Hanson's and set a huge half PR at the New York City half in March, running a 140-140 on a cold day, hilly course. I followed the beginner Hanson's plan to a T, maxing out around 45 miles per week. That result was exactly my target pace based on what Hanson suggested as I was targeting a 142 or better. Now going into the New York City Marathon training cycle, I'm a bit stumped about how I should look towards look what what I should look towards as a training and racing goal and would love some professional guidance. The VDOT calculator spits out some crazy marathon time I never thought I could run, and I'm a little bit gun-shy about my horrible past two marathon experiences. Do I go forward and train to the calculator's pace? Do I go for something more conservative at a target time I would be happy with? She says around 345. Any advice or planning you guys have to offer would be great. Thanks so much, Ariana. And I think this question's appropriate, Steve, on the back of our training and goal pace episode that we did recently because we've also been going through this sort of discussion with our podcast athletes at this time as they've recently done really? time trials yeah. and are starting really <laughs> starting to dial into race pace. So, you know, this is a question that even though we've spent a whole episode talking about it, it's still a difficult one and has various tentacles, especially as it relates to somebody who you know, is newer to the sport and doesn't have as much data to look to to try to figure out where they should be training. So that seems to be the case for Ariana, who's really only been getting into it at a rigorous level for the last 18 months. So, but, you know, but she's looking at all the tools. She's using the calculators. She's got some in- info from Hanson's, I'm sure, from the VDOT calculator, from, from Daniels. So what would you tell her? I would tell her very simply, run what, try to run what you want to run. And it sounds like if you want to run 345, 
don't worry about that calculator. If the if the calculator in the if the calculator in the future is a time that's now gotten into your head, that new time that what I don't you didn't tell us exactly what that time was. But if that let's just say that time is 3:30 because that sounds like something that would be 15 minutes faster and maybe would make your head spin. That doesn't mean that you don't have that you can't go down to that later in this training cycle or in the next training cycle. So having that number lodge into your brain is awesome because it gives you something to look forward to, something to get motivated about. But if you've got a slower time that you're going to be perfectly happy with, and it is your first marathon or one of your early marathons, or you had a bad experience at a marathon, then I would say run the time that you think you would like to run. Because my guess is as long as it's within the ballpark of reason with other races that you've run, that it'll be a much easier and more fun and more consistent and healthy training cycle. One that will be hugely beneficial to you over time. Remember, putting one foot in front of the other at a wide variety of different paces, even if they're not quote unquote your absolute best fitness option is still going to give you much, much more bang for your buck. And so just getting out there and doing the runs at that pace will make the next goal time, maybe that goal time that the VDOT calculator is indicating to you be more realistic. A second thing I would recommend, Chris, is don't be afraid to get out and run a race or two this summer, even if they're not your normal race distance. You could do a two-mile time trial. That would give you an indicator of time. You could go out and do a 10K race. There's probably a 10K race. Almost everybody in the country will have some race in their neck of the woods on the 4th of July. Run a 4th of July race and then plug that into a calculator. Look, Ariana, at a couple other data points, but still lean towards the thing that your heart is telling you. Yes, now you've got this crazy idea in your head about what the VDOT calculator might have indicated. Maybe it's a 330, I'm not sure. But it's still safer and more consistent, and you'll have a much better experience of running if you run at that 345 time and see over the coming months where your training takes you. You're running New York, is that right, Chris? Did she say New York? Yep. We have lots of time in the fall to figure out where you're at dialed in specifically between 330 and 345. And so you're probably pretty safe running at those 345 paces. And then if you see in September and October that you're running much, much faster, shoot us another question and maybe we'll give you an answer that will make you happy about the next time you can run. Yeah, this is, uh, this is what we file, have filed under for some of our podcast training members as a, a, quote, good problem to have, where the calculator is spitting out times that seem unrealistic given your history and experience. But it is a picture, and it may not be a picture of what you can do in New York this year, but it is a picture of your potential, Ariana, which is super exciting. And again, as I said, a good problem to have. The one thing which we covered with McMillan in, in speaking about his calculator is that the times that you're seeing there are representative of the your potential at those distances, assuming you're properly trained for those distances. So in a lot of cases for our marathoners, they will see times for maybe a two mile or 5k race, you know, based on their marathon time that looks crazy and ridiculous because they're not really properly trained for a two mile or 5k race, or maybe they've never spent time training and focusing on those shorter distances. So they might see a time at that end of the spectrum, which is crazy. Other times you have a situation like this one where you have somebody who sees a time at the uh, you know the marathon end of the spectrum that seems crazy based on your history but it's it's not crazy because a 141 half marathon does indicate that you have 
the potential at the marathon distance that you're seeing via that VDOT calculator. Now, does that mean you have the potential in this cycle while you're still building your marathon-specific training experience? Maybe not. New York is also a relatively challenging race, not just from a course perspective with the bridges and the hills, but also from a logistical standpoint. It's really difficult to get that one right with all the crowds, with all the waiting time beforehand, the, the transportation to start, all of that stuff. So there are reasons why New York can be challenging apart from just being a tough course. And so it definitely also reinforces the idea of being conservative is going to be helpful. So I agree with Steve, which is that I would dial into those paces based on a 345. I think your potential indicates that's possible then see how your training goes. You can always revise down later or you can always revise down to the next cycle. But getting another marathon training block under your belt is only going to prepare you for achieving that potential down the road. And there's no reason to be in a hurry because I think what you'll find if you're committed to this process from cycle to cycle is that eventually if you stick with it, you're going to be seeing times in that VDOT calculator that you might not have ever imagined in your life for you. Once you start getting more results through consistent training. And so the time that you're seeing now is eventually going to seem probably easy to you if you keep working it and eventually pass it and then are on to a new level of of training based on you know staying in this consistently and doing it the right way. The Hanson's program is a great program. We'd also love to have you in our podcast training group. Shout out for that. But either way, if you're if you're doing the work based on somebody's rigorous program like theirs, you're going to get there and eventually you're going to be thinking about times that that would probably blow your mind even beyond what you're already seeing in the VDOT calculator, which is super exciting, but as I always say to new runners in my program, focus on the process now. Pick some paces because you have to to start start the training process, but just focus on the process. Focus on executing those paces in training. And then, then let's see where you get to. You know, Super it, exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's gravy, baby. Just enjoy the gravy because at some point in time, it's going to be hard, hard work. You know, I think the other thing to talk about here, and this gets to a little bit of what McMillan talks about in his book, You Only Faster, which is that everybody comes to this sport with different strengths. And, you know, if we were to generalize, Steve, and talk about the profiles of people that we get in our programming, most of them come to us as aerobic babies, as you would describe them. But you might see different profiles where you see some people that might have a background in sports, a background in athletics, and maybe fast twitch sports where they have a little bit more strength or development in the speed side of the equation and they just need the volume to go with it so they can put the two things together. And then sometimes you see people come to us with without that background, but may who may have been running consistently and and they might have a bigger aerobic foundation, but they haven't developed the the fast twitch side of things or the VO2 max side of things. And both of those two athletes are going to see a different progression. You know, one of them is going to benefit more. The latter is going to benefit more from working more VO2 max into their training. 
to support the volume and consistency maybe they've had. The other one's going to benefit more from bringing volume into the equation to go with their their sort of speed background. And everybody's going to come at it with different strengths. And it sounds like in Ariana's case, she's got a little bit more of you know, the fast twitch stuff working and just hasn't developed the volume to prove all of that out at the marathon distance, but that will come. You keep putting in those, those higher mileage weeks, Ariana, and build your mileage, then you're going to see times that match that VDOT calculator and beyond, which is cool. All right, Steve. That's what I've got. Four questions, just four questions today, but we're an hour and 20 minutes. I think that's a solid episode. As always, do send us more questions. If you have them, send them to chris at roguerunning.com. You might find yourself on a future listener's questions episode. And we also have to remind everybody, as we alluded to earlier, that we've got the Endure Book Club episode part one with for the Endorphin Book Club. We're going to be recording that on June 28th when Alex is here in our studio. So if you have questions for Alex, certainly read the book, but send your questions for Alex. Also to me, chris at roguerunning.com. We'll be answering those specifically in that episode. Just get them to me before the 28th so we can sort those and tee them up for Alex when he's here. And that's it. Anything else from you, Steve? No, I love all of you. Every last one of you, even if I berate you over the interwebs. <laughs> and thanks for the questions. Thanks for engaging. We really enjoy these episodes, as Steve mentioned earlier. So there you go. That's a wrap on episode 79. As always, you can check us out on our website at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.